is good to worship the Lord together, isn't it? In the month of January, I took four Sundays to express to you the vision that I believe God wants us to have as a local church. We tried to bring into focus during those Sundays what I think are, will be necessary in the decade of the 90s in terms of ministry if a local church is going to succeed in its ministry, its God-honoring ministry. During those weeks, we laid out eight principles that I think we need to seek to follow in the ministry here at Grace Church. We, of course, began with the foundational principle, that fundamental principle, that the Bible is the Word of God, and that we need to teach it and apply it to everyday life. We also talked about ministry needing to be simplified because of the rat race of our culture. And yet, in the midst of simplifying ministry, we need to provide options for people to choose from in terms of their own involvement. <clears throat> we talked about the functions of a local church, that those functions don't change from generation to generation. They're the same. They are the God-established functions of every local church in every age and every culture. But we said that we needed to adapt the forms that we use in carrying out those functions so that our ministry is effective in our own generation. We talked about the importance of everybody having ownership and commitment to the mission that God gives to us as a local church. A mission that can be focused best if we think of cultural key kinds of ministries. Uh, those kinds of ministries that God would raise up in our midst through us that would enable us to penetrate the culture in which we live. Those kinds of things that God would have us to do to build bridges in the lives of people so that we can then earn the right to present to them the only message in the world that can help them, that can save them, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis I was trying to make is that we can't expect to do ministry in the next ten years like we've always done it in years past. Because culture has dramatically changed and is changing in the midst of rapid change. And we need to adjust our methods in the light of that if we want to get the job done that God's given us to do. <clears throat> now having said those things that I think are, are fundamental to us as we head into the next ten years, I feel led this morning to talk about some old truths that are essential for this new decade. Because you see, there's another matter that we need to address. It's part of the equation also for effective ministry. As we think about change, that's important to consider. But there are some things that do not change. It's possible to have the right philosophy of ministry, the right attitude toward it, and still come short of seeing the glory of God realized in our work. In the midst of uh, the excitement that God gives us with a new decade, with its challenges and with new visions of possibilities of what God might do and with some new ideas and new methods, there are some old truths that we need to hold on to if we want to see our lives mean something. 
if we want this ministry to succeed, if we do not want to fail. And so this morning I'd like to draw our attention to some of these old truths for a new decade. These are not difficult to get a hold of. In fact, they are elementary. They are the ABCs, so to speak, of ministry. But I think it's important as we look ahead and we think about doing things in a different way, proclaiming the same gospel in a way that's effective for our generation, we need to keep hold of the elementary principles about ministry if we want the blessing of God. I think you would agree with me that attitude is far more important than aptitude when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. Attitude is far more important than aptitude. The quality of the heart is more vital than the quantity in the mind. And so as we talk about some of the old truths, I want to focus on the heart, and especially heart attitudes. The first truth I'd like to remind us about this morning is the truth about repentance. Repentance. Repentance is something we often hear in connection with those who are not Christians at all. In fact, it is important that those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord repent. The Lord Jesus said himself that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is an important truth in relation to those without Jesus Christ. But it is likewise important for those who know Christ. You see, when we repent of our sin and we come in faith to Jesus Christ, we do not repent once and for all time for all of life. Repentance is an attitude that needs to be cultivated in the heart of the believer. The Christian needs to keep hold of this thing that we call repentance. Now you say, what is it? Fundamentally, repentance is a change of mind. It involves the way that we think with regard to those that are unsaved. It means that a person changes the way that he thinks about his sin. Instead of loving it, desiring it, and enjoying it, now he says in repentance, I change my mind. I no longer want it. I desire to live the kind of a life that's pleasing to God. He changes his mind regarding God, whereas before he was hostile toward God and rebellious toward God. Now he changes his mind and he comes to God, yielded and surrendered to him. He changes his mind about himself before he saw himself as pretty good. As one who, well, wasn't perfect, but surely good enough to get to heaven somehow. I mean, God is a God of love. That's all that counts, isn't it? I'm better than other people. But he changes his mind about that, and he sees himself as a sinner, desperate, without hope. And he sees in himself no longer any worth, any reason that God would save him, for he is a sinner. And he sees himself in need of a Savior. You see, repentance is essential for the man who is without Jesus Christ. It means he changes his mind about some of the very basic, essential things in life. But repentance is also essential for the Christian. For you and I also need to have a heart 
that is bent toward repentance. And I need to say, too, that repentance is not just a change mentally, but repentance affects the way that one acts. John the Baptist commanded the people that he preached to to repent. And he said, bring forth the fruit of repentance. In other words, if they genuinely had a change of mind, he said, you will bring forth evidence that there is repentance in you. Repentance produces something. Genuine repentance leads to a definite life change. We see this, for example, in Luke chapter 15. I invite you to open your Bible to that chapter. Jesus has been preaching repentance. And there are some who hear him. That is, those who were tax gatherers and sinners. They knew that they were bad. (laughs) They knew they needed something. And when they heard Jesus talk about repentance, they responded. And they came to him. On the other hand, there were others who heard Jesus. These were primarily the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they felt themselves pretty good. They felt that they did keep the law of God. They were self-righteous. And they felt there was no need in them for repentance. As Luke chapter 15 begins, we see that the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, they were criticizing Jesus because of the company that he kept. And so Jesus told them three parables. These are three very well-known parables. Of all the parables Jesus told, these would be among the most familiar. The first one is about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and one of them was lost. And he went out and he found that sheep that was lost and brought him back. And Jesus applies that parable in verse 7 by saying... I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And we might add, or who think they don't. You see, Jesus was speaking directly here to the scribes and Pharisees who felt they needed no repentance. Jesus says there's greater joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous ones who think they're okay. And then he told a similar story, this one dealing with a coin that a woman lost. And she searched and swept until she had found that coin. And she went to her neighbors and said, Rejoice with me, I found that which I had lost. In the same way, Jesus says in verse 10, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so this is a chapter about repentance. Jesus is driving home the point that we need to repent. And then he tells the story of the lost son, the prodigal son, who wished that his father were dead. As far as he was concerned, his father was hanging around too long. He wanted the the inheritance. And so he went to his father and requested it. And the father generously, graciously divided his inheritance before his death. Gave it to both of his sons, for he had two. 
Well, this son left home, went out and wasted all that he had in loose living, immoral living. He had lots of friends as long as he had the money. But when the money ran out, so did the friends. And he found himself ultimately lower than the low for a Jew. He was working among swine. And he was so hungry that he even ate their food. And then it says in verse seven, 17, rather, But when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. Now Jesus doesn't use the word repent here, but he does illustrate what it means. This young man had a change of mind and of heart. Whereas before he enjoyed the kind of living that his money bought him, that was entailed with his friends. Finally, he came to himself and he changed his mind. And he said, my father feeds his hired servants more than I'm getting here. He recognized the love of his father. And he said, I am going back to my father. And I will acknowledge that I've sinned against him and I've sinned against heaven. And while I'm not worthy anymore to be a son, I've already had the inheritance and I've spent it. At least he can make me one of his hired servants and I'll have enough to eat. And so he got up and he went to his father. There's the proof of his change of mind. The evidence of his repentance is in what followed. <clears throat> Jesus is here illustrating the importance of repentance. And while it is true of the one outside of Jesus Christ, I want to say to you this morning that one of the old truths that we must keep hold of in this new decade is our need to cultivate a continual attitude of repentance in our lives. We must have a, an attitude that says to God, God, wherever my thinking is wrong, show it to me and I will change my mind. And my life will change accordingly. A Christian needs to practice repentance as a way of life to remain useful to God. Else the tendency is for our hearts to harden to the Holy Spirit and for us to become self-directed and self-justifying just like these religious leaders in that day who felt they were beyond the need for repentance. What was the problem? With their lips they were near to God but with their hearts they were far from Him. They had lost the meaning of repentance in their lives as religious people. We who profess Jesus Christ as Savior need to develop within ourselves a heart that is bent toward repentance. What do we need to repent about? 
Well, that list could be very long. I suppose we could all add our own lines to it, couldn't we? But this morning I'd like for you to go with me to the book of the Revelation as we see Jesus speaking to seven churches in Asia Minor. These are seven churches that literally existed in his day, in John's day, toward the end of the first century. But it's interesting that as he dictates Jesus, as Jesus dictates these letters to John to deliver to the churches, what he says represents difficulties that believers have in all ages. And so in that sense, these are representative churches. For what they struggled with, what they experienced, what their defeats were, what their victories were, are experienced in all of this age in local churches like them. It is interesting that in four of these churches, the message of Jesus, boiled down to one word, was repent. Someone has said the last commission of Jesus to the church was not go into all the world. The last commission of Jesus to the church was repent. Change your mind. I notice that we begin in the first part of chapter 2 with a letter to Ephesus where Jesus commends this church for its many, many strengths. This was a great church. This was the kind of church that would be written up in Christian periodicals and pointed to as one of the, the super churches of the day. One of the effective ministries in that generation many positive things to be said about it. But in verse 4, Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at the first, or else. Yes, Jesus at times pulled out that little phrase, or else, and he did here. He said, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now I want you to understand, again I repeat, this was a model church in nearly every respect. Read about it in those earlier verses. Jesus underscores their strengths. But so serious was this matter of having lost their first love that Jesus said, I would rather come and pull your lampstand away, take away your witness and your testimony, than to have you go on doing those good things having lost your first love. Having lost love is not immediately apparent, is it? It's not in a marriage, is it? A marriage can go on for months and sometimes even years with, with people fooling one another regarding their true feelings. It's a tragedy when that happens, but it can happen. But the fact is that inevitably, ultimately, it will show up. 
It may show up in small ways or it may show up in some gigantic blunder. But inevitably, the loss of love will show up in a relationship. Here, the the loss of love had not yet shown up, but it was there. And because Jesus examines the heart, he knew it. And despite the fact that all of these good things were happening in their midst, he said, look, there is a serious problem here. You have lost your ardor for me. You don't love me like you used to. You have fallen away from the intensity of your devotion to me, your affection to me. And he says, change your mind and bring forth those first works again. Those works that came out of genuine love and heartfelt devotion and affection for Christ. Or else. Or else you're done. You're finished. I don't know about you, but I find that awfully serious. Awfully serious. Because you see, it's possible for a church to go on for years And sometimes even decades doing good things. Being up to date in its methodology. Being on the cutting edge of its philosophy of ministry. Attracting attention from all over the country with people coming to see how they do it. If that church has lost its first love for Jesus Christ, it's finished. Unless it repents. Now, if that's true of a church, it's true of us as individuals too. We can go through the motions, we can sing the worship songs, we can like our contemporary worship or our traditional worship, our liturgical worship. We can read our Bible, we can be a part of a flock, we can be a ministry pastor in a small church. We can be doing all of the right things. But if we have lost the fire of love for Jesus Christ, we need to repent. I look ahead down the chapter to uh, the church of Pergamum. Another church that had its difficulties. We'll pick it up in verse 14. After commending them for some things, Jesus says in verse 14, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. 
Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else. I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, Jesus warns, repent. What is the difficulty here? It was an accommodation in the church of Pergamum to false teaching and false lifestyle. If we boil it down, that's basically what it amounted to. They allowed in their presence some who took liberties with the doctrine of God's word. And who as a result of that took liberty in their lifestyle. They did not consider sin very serious. And the church did nothing about it. They apparently had the kind of an attitude that Corinth had about it. We're broad-minded. We accept everybody just the way they are to the point that they never dealt with sin. Jesus says to them, look, repent, or else I will come and make war against them. Isn't that a remarkable statement? As we move into the 90s, and we, by the grace of God, want to put in place the kind of a ministry that is going to be effective, we must keep the attitude of repentance when it comes to doctrine and a lifestyle. Now granted, in some areas of doctrine, there can be minor differences among us. We're not all going to cross every T and dot every I just the same way. But when it comes to the essential message of the Word of God, we dare not allow false teaching to be propagated in our midst. Nor dare we allow false living to be propagated in our midst. That is, the failure to take sin seriously. For if we accommodate ourselves to that, we fall under the condemnation of our Lord who examines our candlestick too. And who will deal with us unless we repent wherein I as an individual have allowed false teaching to come into my life, or I have accommodated myself to the world, and I have let down the standards of my living, and I do things that a few years ago I wouldn't have done, or I put up with things that I would not have put up with, wherein I have compromised myself in holy living, I need to repent. That's one of the old truths we need in the new decade. And I look in chapter 3, and I see again Jesus calling a church to repentance. It's the church at Sardis. And he says in verse 1, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive... But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. 
For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. What is the problem here in Sardis? It is the lack of spiritual life and power. Here is a church that had a reputation. Here is a church that had a name about itself. But Jesus says, Though you have the name that you are alive, in fact, you are dead. And so he says, Wake up. Repent. It is good for a church family to be genuinely complimented from time to time. And I think we pastors and other evangelists and so on fail to do that as often as we should. But there is also a danger in hearing too often and taking too seriously compliments by well-meaning people. I think of a church that I know well that has for decades been told, you are a great church. Evangelists come through, you are a great church. And the same statement is made over and over again with varying vocabulary, but the same idea, you are a great church. But knowing the church better than some who just passed through, I would have to say that to some degree, what is said here to Sardis is true of that church. It has the name that it's a great church, but it's dead. You and I can have a reputation as being a wonderful Christian, too. Uh, We can have a reputation that causes people to take notice when we walk in a room. And sometimes we take care to build that kind of a reputation. But it's possible to have a name and be dead. To have no spiritual life or power about oneself. It's possible to be the leader of a Christian organization and to have no spiritual life or power. It's possible to be known far and wide, to be up in front of people ministering and to have no spiritual life or power. It's possible to be a Sunday school teacher. It's possible to be an usher. It's possible to lead a Bible study, to be a discipler of others. And to have no spiritual life or power. It's possible to be a student in a Bible college, a Christian college, a liberal arts college. Part is, it's possible to be a member of a, a campus Christian group. And to have no spiritual life or power. Jesus says, remember. Go back to what you received, to what you heard in the beginning. 
Go back to the foundation. Remember, wake up and repent. Change your mind and go back to those things that you learned earlier. Let me just point out one more church. It's in this chapter again. It's the church at Laodicea. Verse 15, Jesus says to this church, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline be zealous therefore and repent behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus is there giving an invitation, not really to the unsaved, though we often use that verse in that context. <clears throat> but he's given the invitation to the church at Laodicea. He's outside the door. And he's calling upon them to repent, and to repent in the sense that they change their mind and they invite him in. This church needs to repent of its materialism, its contentment with material things and its attainments. How often churches measure themselves by what they own, what their offerings are, how many missionaries they support. And I'm not saying those things are unimportant. They have a place. But they aren't the final measure. The measurement is where Jesus is. Is he in the church? Is he involved in the church? Is he in the heart of the church? Or is he outside knocking on the door saying, let me in? It's possible for you and me to... Be content in our Christian life with material things. To think that because we have now prospered, God surely must be blessing me. Thank you, Lord. And that prosperity, whatever its source, causes our heart to stray from God. Or we have attainments. We think, I have need of nothing. And Jesus knocks on the door and he says, Say, can I come in? Repent, he says. You know, the problem we have today is the kind of churches that are described here we think are normal. We think this is normal Christianity. It's not normal. Normal Christianity is the kind of Christianity that keeps repentance right up there on the front burner. And when something happens, when there's some change of heart and mind that leads away from the Lord, and there's conviction about it, there's a change. And repentance brings that person back, that church back. That's normal Christianity. 
Vance Havner said that our form of Christianity is so subnormal that if anybody gets normal, we think he's abnormal. He's right. Repentance leads us to conversion, to turn around again. The word conversion literally means just to turn around. To be going this way and turn around. That's the result of repentance. You say conversion's for the unsaved, yes. But it's also for the saved. The saved man or woman needs to be converted. We see this, for example, in Peter. Jesus warned Peter that he was going to fail him. But he said, Peter, I've prayed for you. And he says, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Peter was a believer, but he was going to go through a conversion experience. He was going to walk away from Christ. But he was going to repent of that. And with bitter tears he did, and he was converted. He went back the other way and met Christ on his resurrection morning. James says, let the one who converts the sinner. There at the end of the fifth chapter of his book. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about a, a Christian in the first place who sins. He's talking about brethren. And he says the brethren who are in sin need to be converted to deliver them from the judgment of God. I believe strongly in what I talked about in January. I wouldn't have devoted four Sundays to it if I didn't believe in it strongly. And I know that many of you believe in it too. To the extent that you uh, comprehend what I have said because it's hard to grab a hold of all of that stuff in just four weeks. Many of you have said, look, I, I believe in that. I'm behind you. I, I want to be a part of this kind of a church. I thank God for that. But folks, as we get into the new decade, let's not forget the old truths like repentance. Let's not think that just by putting a philosophy in place or by creating new forms or doing this or doing that, that solves everything. It doesn't. We have to come back to the old truths like repentance and say, Lord, keep my heart tender. And when I have gone wrong, show me so I can change my mind and turn around and be converted again. That's our need. Let's pray. This morning as we talk about this theme. I wonder if there are others who would join me and would want to say, Lord, that's the kind of a heart I want to keep. Lord, I want the kind of a heart that is willing to repent. Lord, deliver me from hardness of heart. Make me a repentant Christian, one that can be easily converted and brought back to the right way. Lord, correct the attitude of my heart. Keep it right. Lord, bring me to the old truth of repentance. 
If that's your heart attitude, in the sense that this morning you need to repent of something, an area of your life where you've been thinking wrong, perhaps there's been stubbornness and rebellion and you've heard Jesus knocking at the door and you've refused to go to the door, and you've heard him say, do this or else, and you have ignored it, let today be the day when you repent and you change your mind and agree with Jesus and give that area of your life to him. If you want to do that this morning, I'm going to invite you in a moment to stand where you are. But with you, I want to invite to stand those who may not need a point of repentance this morning, but who are saying out of their hearts, Lord, that's the kind of a heart I want to maintain. Lord, that's the kind of a heart I want to cultivate a repentant heart. And I stand because that's my heart desire. Now, for either one of those reasons, because of a point of repentance or because you want to pursue that attitude in your heart, if you'd be willing to stand, I invite you to do that right now with your head bowed. God knows why you're doing it. And don't do it if you don't mean it. It's meaningless. But, oh God, that's the kind of a heart I want. Oh God, this is an area that needs to be changed. God bless you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you will seal to our hearts what the Spirit has said this morning. And may we be an open, repentant, humble people who listen to the voice of the Spirit. We do not want our testimonies as individuals or as a church to be removed we do not want to come under condemnation. Rather, we want our lives to be well-pleasing to you. And so we stand before you to say, here we are. We would be repentant. Repentant. Work in us now the works of repentance. Let's all stand together. And let's sing with our heads bowed. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Amen.